I want to begin by welcoming our, all of our debaters to the stage. And, and as I said, uh, we are delighted to be doing this debate in partnership with the McCain Institute for International Leadership, and I'd like to welcome to this lectern uh, the Institute's Executive Director, Ambassador Kurt Volker. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Uh, delighted to be here and delighted to be partnering with Intelligence Squared again. We've done another debate together on defense budgets. The McCain Institute for International Leadership is a part of Arizona State University, uh, based in Washington, D.C., with a strong footprint in Arizona as well. And in fact, during the course of tonight's debate, we have students who will be watching this at ASU and will be broadcast on Arizona State Television as well. Um, we seek, as the McCain Institute, to advance the next generation of character-driven leadership. That is our core mission. And a part of that core mission is to advance the culture and the practice of serious debate over serious issues affecting our country. We launched this debate series as the McCain Institute back in January with debates about Syria policy and Afghanistan. We're delighted to be doing this one with Intelligence Squared. We have another one on December 5th. Please come, this room, December 5th, on drone policy. Are we going too far? Uh, as, I, um, uh, as I said, the, um, I'm confused now about the hashtags because if you want to tweet and you can do it without interfering with the signals, then it's hashtag spy debate. But if it interferes, don't do that. <laughs> John, what was the uh, signal you showed for spontaneous applause? Is this <laughs> Thank you. That one. Yeah, what we're really counting on is limited tweeting competence in the audience. So, <laughs> so if you can, we're delighted. But uh, if you're not, we just want you to shut down. And uh, just to get us started, uh, I just want to one more time give a round of applause to Ambassador Volker for, for bringing us here. A metaphor, the, the U.S. government sucking in all of that data about the phone calls that we make when we're talking, who we're talking to, how long we're talking, is a fishing trawler dragging a net across the high seas. The government and its crew at the National Security Agency wants to catch bad guys, terrorists. The crew on the fishing boat wants to catch, let's make it, tuna fish. But the fisherman's net also drags along with it all of those good guys who are swimming out there, those cute little dolphins. And the dolphins die, which is a clear harm to them. But is there a harm to us in the data that is collected by the NSA and its net? Nobody likes it, but nobody dies from it. In fact, the argument is that the NSA's big net is saving lives, keeping all of us little dolphins out there safe. Yes? No? Well, it sounds like there's a debate in that, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, spy on me, I would rather be safe. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. in partnership with the McCain Institute for International Leadership. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters, Americans all, but two against two in this debate, for and against this motion, spy on me, I would rather be safe. We look at this motion not as an extreme statement, all for spying and all against spying, but we're going to be talking about gradations, what's in the middle. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is, spy on me, I'd rather be safe.
Let's meet the team arguing for this motion. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stuart Baker. And Stuart, you were the NSA's top lawyer, and later on you became the first Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. And in your memoir, Skating on Stilts, you wrote about having to build the whole thing from scratch, recruiting the right people, setting up a budget. And at the end of it, you wrote this, quote, unquote, I did that, now I'm tired. <laughs> so have you caught up on your sleep? Well, I'll, I may never be tan, but I'm rested and I'm ready. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. And Stuart, your partner is? Your partner is? Oh, Rich Falkenrath, who, with whom I worked uh, at the Department of Homeland Security and one of the people I admired most uh, in uh, my government service. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falkenrath. Richard, you are also arguing for this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. Uh, you've held a lot of leadership positions in U.S. counterterrorism efforts. You were Deputy Homeland Security Advisor under the Bush administration. You were New York City's Police Department's Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism. Both jobs, tough places, tough times, but which is the harder place to live in, New York or Washington? <laughs> uh, Washington's harder. I'll take uh, traffic gridlock over partisan gridlock any day. Ooh, clever, clever. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falconrath. Our motion is this, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. We have two debaters now arguing against this motion. First, let's welcome, please, David Cole. David, you are a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, you are one of the country's leading civil liberties advocates. You've uh, litigated many uh, constitutional cases, big ones in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, we read that when you went off to law school, you did act not actually plan on being a lawyer, but you were going to be a writer. So you didn't. So I'm wondering, is, is the nation missing one great American novel? Well, I think it turns out the truth is stranger than fiction. If I'd written a novel saying the NSA was spying on every one of us, no one would have believed it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David Cole. These guys on fire already. And your partner is? Mike German, one of the few people in the world who's worked for both the FBI and the ACLU. Exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Michael German. Yeah, you worked for the FBI for 16 years. You were a special agent in domestic terrorism for 12 of those years. Um, then, then you moved on and you resigned in 2004, and now you work for policy on policy for the UCLA. Uh, for the UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> now you're working for on policy for the ACLU. And I'm just wondering, does how does being having all that undercover experience come into play for you now? Uh, well, the first rule of working undercover is now never telling anyone you've ever worked undercover. Oh, so. yeah. Boy, did uh, I make a mistake. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Michael German. So those are, those are our debaters, and our motion is spy on me. I would rather be safe, and this is a debate. It's a contest. These two teams are competing for your votes, and by the time this debate has ended, we will have asked you to vote twice how you stand on this motion. And at the end of the debate, the team whose numbers have been changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So let's go to the preliminary vote. Go to the keypads at your seat. And you look at the motion and the team arguing for it. This side, the motion is spy on me, I'd rather be safe. If you agree with that motion, push number one. If you're on the other side at this point, if you're against this motion, push number two. And if you're undecided, a perfectly reasonable position, push number three. 
You can ignore the other keys. They're not live. And if you push the wrong button, just correct yourself, and the system will lock in your correct vote, your last vote. Um, and then at the end of the debate, we're going to go through the process again, and we get a readout in about 45 seconds to a minute and a half. Um, so uh, you'll know, we'll know who the winner is based on whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms. So we go in three rounds. And now we go on to round one, opening statements from each of our debaters in turn. They will be six minutes each. Speaking first, for this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe, Richard Falconrath. He is the principal, a principal at the Chertoff Group and former New York City Police Department Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falconrath. Uh, thank you very much, John. Thank you all for coming. Uh, these issues we're debating tonight are, are difficult and very complex. Uh, and they engage some of the most fundamental issues in American public life liberty, security, technology, democracy. Um, and there really are no simple answers uh, to this. We'll do our best uh, to distill it. But let me just say, anyone who's worked in these issues in a practical way knows how hard they are and that they do need to be very carefully weighed and not handled impulsively or ideologically. I'm going to make three points uh, in this opening statement. The programs that we're going to talk about tonight really do matter for security. And for me, having been Deputy Commissioner of Counterterrorism at the NYPD and then three different jobs in the, in the White House uh, before, during, and after 9-11, I can really tell you this uh, first, on a firsthand basis. And we may get into some of the details of how this works, how these sorts of systems lead to the original lead that then leads to the unraveling of a plot and the saving of lives. Uh, it is not abstract. Uh, it is real, no kidding, uh, lives at stake sort of business. Um, I don't want to uh, hyperventilate about it, but I've lived through enough of them to be able to recount some of the direct experiences. And if that comes up uh, in the Q&A, we'll be happy to uh, go through them in greater detail. But they really do matter. Turns out a terrorist plot is not that difficult to stop if you know about it. And finding out about it in the first place is by far the hardest step in the process. And the overwhelming number of incidents that we've had since 9-11, that original lead, what's called the predication for further investigative steps, has come from electronic surveillance of one form or another. So these programs really do matter. Second, and then what I'm about to say, I think, uh, is going to unite both sides of this debate. Stuart and I uh, have worked on these issues for a while. We are for lawful surveillance lawful forms of electronic surveillance, things which uh, clearly, backed up by the Constitution, by statute, and by court interpretation, are permissible. So don't for a second think that Stuart and I are arguing for anything that is illegal. And since the other side, I think it's very likely not to argue in favor of illegal surveillance either, I think this is something that brings us together. We are for lawful forms of surveillance. And there is an extensive body of law that governs when, how, where these systems can be deployed. Um, and we, this is not a legal seminar, uh, but I can tell you uh, that that system has evolved in such a way over the last 35 years that is really nothing short of an enormous success for the American privacy and civil liberties community. It's hard to believe, but it's a fact that 35 years ago, there was no statutory constraint and no, no jurisprudential constraint on the ability of the President of the United States to conduct electronic surveillance inside the United States for foreign intelligence purposes. It was unfettered. 
Now it's fettered quite significantly. First with the creation of a FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, with um, and an act in 1978, and then adjusted in important ways with the FISA Modernization Acts of the last five years. Um, and so this is something you really have to understand if you take this in kind of broader historical context. An incredible amount of progress has been made, and these sorts of programs have been brought under the constraint of law where they were not previously. Previously, if these laws had never been passed, it was solely the powers of the president under the Constitution, Article 2, that permitted him to do this. And those days are over. Now there is a law which governs it, many laws in fact, and the court is involved in overseeing things which previously were exclusively within the domain of the president. There are now checks and balances on his power to do that, and that is extraordinary progress. The third thing I want to say is how unusual this area is in Washington. As I said, there's partisan gridlock in here. Name me another issue in public life, health care or taxation or entitlement reform or what to do in the Middle East, where you have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judiciary all unanimous about the contours and direction of a specific program. It's remarkable that this happens. Not just the three branches of government, but in the case of the executive branch, a set of policies and programs which have survived partisan transition. So these programs which we have today emerged in the latter half of the Bush administration and have survived essentially unchanged into the Obama administration. Two leaders who could not be more different and they are unchanged. And so this is where the other side of this debate really have a pretty tough argument because you have broad bipartisan majorities in both chambers of Congress, the two presidents of different parties, different characters, one, the current one, quite liberal and quite educated in constitutional law, he taught at University of Chicago, and the judiciary, all backing up and saying it's fine. So what the other side has to do, and it's a tough burden, I think, is say they've all got it wrong, we've got it right, we know better. And I think, frankly, that's a pretty uh, high burden for them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard Falkenroth. Um, I just want to mention to our other debaters, we give them a visual clock so they know how much time they have left. Our clock's not functioning. Richard, uh, you, you hit it. You have, a, you have a magic clock in your head. Um, but if the other debaters would like me to give them a 30-second warning uh, to give you a target, I'm happy to do that. And if you don't think you need it, so I'll just, I'll just gently say 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> I'll do that. Our motion is this, spy on me, I would rather be safe. And our next debater will be speaking against the motion. He is Michael German, Senior Policy Counsel for the American Civil Liberty Union's Washington Legislative Office and a former FBI Special Agent. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael German. Thank you. Thank you, John. And just to be clear, the question isn't whether there are threats. There have always been threats, and I would be the last person in the world to tell you that there aren't threats right here in our own community that can harm us. And it's not whether the, the government should have tools to address those threats. Of course it should. It's whether the tools the government is using today are necessary, legal, or effective. I oppose the motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe, because I'm not a terrorist or a violent criminal. And spying on me isn't going to keep anybody safe. And unless you're a terrorist or a criminal, you should also vote no, whether you care about your privacy or not. Because spying on you is only going to waste security resources and fill important intelligence databases with irrelevant information. 
Spying on you and spying on me makes us less free and less safe. We know that spying on us didn't protect us from the Christmas Day underwear bomber, from the Times Square bomber, from Najibullah Zazi's crew, who got an explosive into New York City, but ultimately flushed it down the toilet rather than detonating it. These terrorists all traveled to foreign terrorist training camps. Then they came to the United States and attempted to bomb us. Luck is what protected us in these cases, not mass surveillance. Spying also didn't protect us from the Boston Marathon bombers or shootings at Fort Hood or at an Army recruiting center in Arkansas. These terrorists were investigated by the FBI before they went on their rampages, and yet they weren't stopped. While the government was spying on us, violence from far-right extremists killed 300 people in the United States since 2001. And this is just a tiny fraction of the 14,000 murders that happen in the United States every year. A third of those, more than a third of those, go unsolved. Solving 4,000 murders a year, that would keep us safer. In a 16-year FBI career, I can honestly say I never found a criminal or a terrorist by rummaging through the personal information of innocent people. Traditional law enforcement standards of reasonable suspicion and probable cause don't just exist to protect our rights. These standards actually helped me as an investigator because they forced me to focus on the right people for the right reasons, to follow evidence rather than flawed hunches or profiles. In my undercover work against neo-Nazis and anti-government militias, there were a lot of people saying things I didn't like. But I knew I had to have a reasonable basis to assume somebody was, was engaging in violent activity or in, in illegal activity. Otherwise, if I couldn't find that, I could just turn my attention to somebody else. Because again, there are real threats. And this standard helped me focus my investigations properly so those cases successfully prevented terrorist attacks ended in successful prosecutions, and didn't violate anyone's rights. Today, our government's spying on all of us in a lot of different ways. Uh, it collects all of our telephone records on an ongoing daily basis. It photocopies every piece of domestic mail. It intercepts Americans' international communications and financial transactions. It collects millions of images from license plates, readers, and surveillance cameras. The FBI even collects census information so it can map American communities by race and ethnicity. The problem with these programs, the problem is that these programs collect so much information that the signal gets lost in the noise. So it's not a surprise that the NSA can point to only one terrorism-related prosecution that might not have happened absent gobbling up all of our telephone numbers. And that was a, a material support for terrorism case that involved a $8,000 transmittal to Somalia. Think of the billions of dollars these programs cost and how that could have been spent on so many different things, including things that improve security. If a 2011 triple homicide in Waltham, Massachusetts had been solved, the Boston Marathon bombing might never have happened. Instead of making us safe, these mass surveillance programs cast undeserved suspicion on innocent people simply because they're, they're linked somehow to a suspect, not a terrorist, but a suspect, often by two or three degrees of separation, like that old Kevin Bacon game. This process creates a flood of false positives that then have to be run to ground. These are what the FBI used to call the Pizza Hut leads. 
because they often ended up at the pizza delivery guy. <laughs> the difficulty resolving this false suspicion leads to bloated watch lists. The watch lists over a million names on it now, but often not the right names, like the underwear bombers. The flood of data coming into the intelligence community is so overwhelming the agents that, that it's harming our, our security. The National Counterterrorism Center says it receives 5,000 pieces of information and puts 350 people on the watch list every day. The official review of the FBI's investigation of Major Nadal Hassan uh, prior to the Fort Hood shooting uh, blamed what it's called the relentless workload on the agents, which was caused by what seconds. it said was a data explosion within the FBI. The FBI assessment of Boston Marathon bomber Tamerlan Sarnayev was one of 1,000 assessments the Boston JTTF did that year. A study of intelligence community analysts published earlier this year included some interesting quotes. One analyst said, there's just so much information. How do I know which of 3,000 cables to pay attention to? It's an unrealistic expectation. Michael German, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much, Michael German. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. And Stuart, our clocks are working again. Is that going to be enough for you? That'll be fine. You don't want the audible. Okay, thanks. I'm going to introduce you. Here to debate for the motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe, Stuart Baker. He is former general counsel of the NSA and the first assistant secretary for policy for the Department of Homeland Security, currently a professor, uh, currently a partner at the law firm Steptoe & Johnston. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. Thanks, John. Uh, um, Mike German has has put the problem, I think, as directly as it could be. When, if ever, is it appropriate for the government to gather data on large populations, everybody, in order to make us more safe? That's the question. You can call it spying on on everybody if you like, and he does, uh, uh, but it's not as unusual or as ineffective and certainly not illegal uh, uh, as he suggests. Uh, uh, And I'll take his challenge of saying, when has spying on everybody, when when has gathering all of the data on everybody, innocent or not, uh, helped us stop uh, terrorist attacks? And let's take uh, the Zazi case, uh, the Times Square bombing case, uh, uh, the uh, underwear bomber. When I was at DHS, one of the things we fought very hard to do was something that I think my German would call spying on everyone. We said we want the airlines to give us the travel reservation information and the passport information on everybody who's flying into the United States. Everybody, not just the suspects. We need to know who's coming here. Uh, We used that data to Uh, compare the names and the information that was on there to the databases in which we had information about people we were worried about or patterns that we were worried about. And then when those people arrived, uh, a few of them, one 
or a half of a percent would end up spending about 45 minutes talking to a customs agent about why they were coming to the United States who would try to determine whether this person was a threat. Uh, that was a routine practice, and most of us just, you know, it's welcome home and uh, uh, you move on. But a few people, they, did, they couldn't stop everybody, but they could stop a few people. They used this data to decide who was worth worrying about. Now, let's take the underwear bomber. Uh, the people who did airport uh, security had no information about him, and not surprisingly, they didn't check him very carefully, and he got right past them. It turned out that when he la was due to land, he had already been flagged by the customs folks who had access to that data as somebody that they, through checking back-end databases, were able to identify as somebody that they were worried about. Uh, so he would have been caught if we'd had the information earlier, and he would have been caught when he landed. Uh, that's indeed probably why al-Qaeda wanted to blow up the plane before he had to get past the customs officials. The same thing is true for the uh, Times Square bomber, where after the bombing, the FBI got a phone number. They asked our uh, guys, do you have that phone number? Did anybody that, with that phone number come into the United States? Turned out that he'd given that same phone number uh, to the airline for his reservation data. Uh, the department was able to identify him, provide the data, start a manhunt, uh, and then he got on the plane uh, and was about to leave the country. The only reason we caught him is because we had data on everybody who was getting on that plane, and we were able to run the information in the background and determine this is the guy we're looking for. He's on the plane. That plane had already closed its doors when the customs officials went on to pull him off. Uh, he would have gotten away, but for the data, which Mike German calls spying on everybody, I would call it gathering data, uh, that is already in the hands of third parties, giving it to the airlines. They're going to use it to decide whether you get chicken or tornadoes uh, uh, and whether you get that three inches of extra uh, uh, legroom. You know, I'm happy to have that information also used to make sure I actually arrive at my destination. And it seems to me that uh, uh, the intrusion, you can call it, a lot of scary things, but the fact is, at the end of the day, it's information that I willingly shared with the airlines, and I'm happy that they're using it to protect me as well. Uh, that's, uh, that's the real question we have here, is can we use data that we've given to a third party, can the government use data that you've given to a third party to try to find terrorists? We do that all the time. The NSA program is probably the most aggressive use of that, uh, but at the end of the day, this is billing information that you've given, that we've all given, to the uh, uh, phone companies. It is searched by law enforcement outside of the NSA program 1.3 million times a year. Uh, what the NSA did at the end of the day through the program and through the safeguards that they established for that program, uh, uh, they required, yes, we gather the information, but no one can search it without articulable, reasonable suspicion passed on by a lawyer. Uh, it'll be audited. A limited number of people will have access to it. At the end of the day, 300 numbers went into that on a given year. 500, they, there were searches to find who they were talking to. 500 numbers came out as potentially suspicious, and only then 
did the government go out to fi- try to find out whose name was associated with that, uh, 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 those phone numbers? Uh, 500 people versus, and all used for terrorist purposes, all carefully scrubbed, versus 1.3 million searches done by law enforcement every day without bringing 1984 home to America. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart Baker. Our motion is, spy on me, I would rather be safe. And now our final debater making an opening statement is David Cole. He will be arguing against this motion. He's a professor at Georgetown University Law Center and a volunteer attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, David Cole. Thank you. Um, Stuart Baker gave a great defense of the public passenger data program that we've all known about for years and no one has had any problem with. Of course, that's not what's at issue here. What's at issue here is whether we have a problem with the secret NSA program uh, adopted in secret through secret interpretations of a law uh, whose author said this would never uh, have, he never would have dreamed of authorizing this sort of program had he known that's what the government uh, was going to do with it. Uh, I think that's a very different question. The NSA is collecting uh, information on every time every one of us calls or texts anybody. Your son, your daughter, your mother, your doctor, your psychiatrist, your AA mentor, your old girlfriend, your new girlfriend. (laughs) That's what they're collecting. It's not passenger data about people getting on airplanes. It's literally every phone call. It's doing it in secret, as I said, pursuant to a secret interpretation of a law whose author said this is not consistent with what I understood. And Rich Falconroth says there's, there's unanimity about this program. I don't think so. There are 30 bills that have been introduced in Congress to try to fix the problem that has now been disclosed, not because of openness and checks and balances, but because of Edward Snowden uh, leaking it. And this is a program that the NSA lied to Congress to keep secret from us. When, when the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, was asked point blank, are you collecting data on millions of Americans, he said, in Congress. Under oath, he said no. Later, he said that was the least untruthful answer he could give. Well, I think I can think of two more truthful answers. One would have been yes, and the other would have, would have been uh, we can't confirm or deny. But instead, he lied to us. Lied to us, why? Because if we knew that this program was, on, uh, was underway, we wouldn't accept it. Mike has suggested uh, reasons why you should vote against this kind of spying because it doesn't work, doesn't make us safe. I'm going to suggest that you should vote against the program because it violates core principles of a democracy, transparency and privacy. A healthy democracy demands transparency from the government and privacy for the citizens. But it seems that today we have reversed that. With the government demanding transparency from us, but insisting on secrecy with respect to the programs that it employs. We should be concerned about this because of the problems that secrecy poses to a democracy. Of course, there's a role for secrecy in terms of national security, but there's also a role for democracy. And when you have an agency engaging in conduct that the the person who passed the law says is totally inconsistent with the law he passed, 
and doing it in secret and lying about it, you have a problem with democracy. Secure, national security is a compelling state interest, and it is justifiable to engage in surveillance of a range of, of, of kinds in order to keep us safe. But we have a right to have a say in how far the government goes in spying on us and our daughters and our sons and our mothers, etc. Uh, and we were denied that say and denied it in the worst possible way uh, through secrecy and lies. We should all be, also be concerned about the program because it invades our privacy. Privacy is critical. It's essential to human development. It's essential to intimate relations. It's essential to political freedom. People can't speak freely when they fear that the government may well be listening in. Now, some people say, well, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. But I, I think most of us have nothing to hide, but most of us nonetheless close the door to our bedrooms, close the door to our house, put password protections on our computers. Some of us limit who can be friends with us on Facebook. Um, we, 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 we seal the envelopes that we mail. We believe in uh, maintaining privacy because it's central uh, to human existence, and it's, it's particularly essential uh, to a robust democracy that people have the privacy to engage in political discussion without fear that the government's going to be coming in uh, and invading that privacy. Uh, Stewart suggests, well, some, if, if, if Verizon has it, why should we be concerned if the government gets it? Well, I think there are a number of reasons we should be concerned. First of all, Verizon doesn't collect this data on every person and hold it for five years as the NSA is doing. That's precisely why the NSA is demanding it, because Verizon just gets it, looks at it for billing records, and then gets rid of it. Second, Verizon doesn't have the power to lock you up. It doesn't have the power to indict you. It doesn't have the power to investigate you for tax evasion because it doesn't like your politics, which we've seen this government do in the past. Um, the government does have that power. Uh, and, and, and third, Verizon doesn't have the incentive to go after its customers in the same way that government, unfortunately, all too often has an incentive to go after those uh, that are critical of it. And we've seen it, uh, we saw it in the, in the 60s and 70s with a, a, a national security program that ended up focusing on anti-war protesters, civil war, I mean civil rights activists, Martin Luther King, and women's rights activists. So it's not an abstract concern, it's a real uh, concern. So I think because the NSA program turns democracy on its head, demanding that our lives be transparent and insisting on secrecy for the government, you should vote against the motion. Thank, Thank you. you, David Cole. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. Now, you've heard the opening round. Remember how you voted just before the opening round, because we're going to have you vote immediately after all of the arguments and after round three. And the team whose numbers have changed the most over the course of your two votes in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Now on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and answer questions from me. 
and from you, our live audience here in Washington, D.C. We have two teams of two arguing out on this motion. Spy on me, I'd rather be safe. The team that's arguing for this motion, Richard Falkenrath and Stuart Baker, make the argument that there are no simple answers to this. Yes, there is a conflict between privacy and security, but that on the whole, the mass surveillance programs, such as were exposed in 2013 uh, regarding the NSA and phone records and Verizon, um, that by and large that those programs work, that they are protected by uh, safeguards. Uh, those safeguards are, are uh, legally sanctioned and the result of uh, years and years of uh, concern about how to incorporate privacy into the activities, uh, respect for privacy into the activities of the intelligent community. Uh, the t team arguing against the motion, Michael German and David Cole, they're arguing against this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. They're saying, yes, there are threats and there does need to be surveillance, but that basically uh, a government that's able to fish in this sea of data is a government that is exceeding uh, its position in a democratic society. The violation of privacy goes too far. The failure to be transparent goes too far, and that in any case, the system would be flooded with so much data in such a situation that it actually becomes counterproductive to have that information on citizens who have done nothing wrong. I want to go to the side that's arguing for this motion that's, that's more comfortable with, uh, with the surveillance <coughs> programs that are in place and say to you that your, your opponents have made the argument that, well, one of them in particular, he, that this program that the NSA conducted really um, affronted his sense of privacy just in a very basic way. Now, you, your side, you're not uh, denying the fact that to some degree there's a compromise of privacy. It's just not enough to count. And I want to know why that is. Where, where is your line, uh, Stuart Baker, on just how willing to be spied on you are? There's, there's no doubt that when the government collects data, uh, everybody in a democracy ought to be concerned and want to make sure that it is handled in as privacy-protective a fashion as possible, uh, consistent with actually having it be effective. Uh, uh, the difficulty here is, or the, the, the protections here, are built into the back end of the system. That is to say, the government has the data, but just because it has it doesn't mean it's allowed to look at it. It's set up a whole set of rules, court-enforced, uh, uh, aggressively audited, limited uh, number of people who can get access to this data and clear rules for when they can do it to make it much more like the rules that apply to ordinary uh, searches by law enforcement, which is you have a suspicion and you ask uh, a, a question about the person or the, in this case, the phone number that you have a suspicion about. They don't have any ability to look at people for... So, uh, so, so in answer to my question, if the safeguards were not in place, you would have a great deal more concern. Yes, absolutely. All right, so let me take that to the other side. They're, they're arguing that, in fact, while that data is there, that there are built-in safeguards. And those things are for real. Um, you know, there's a there's a process through which um, governments need to go, and or the government needs to know to go in order to dig more deeply into that pile of data. Uh, but Michael German, um, do you do you trust in the safeguards, or what is your response to their basic argument that maybe it's not so nice, but it's safe? Uh, well, I, I guess the easy two-word response would be Edward Snowden, <laughs> right? If this data and all this stuff was so protected and so well regulated and and so much controlled. How would Edward Snowden have gotten so much access to it? And luckily, because Edward Snowden did get so much access to it, and because we are still benefiting even this week from information that's coming forward, what has become clearer and clearer is that the FISA court was being 
the, the, the NSA was misrepresenting the program, I'll say that in the nicest way, uh, and continually going beyond the scope of the minimization procedures and the rules to the, to the extent that in 2011, Judge Bates said it was unconstitutional. What the bottom NSA line, then, are you saying that you don't trust the system? I don't trust any system that doesn't have effective public oversight. Richard Falconer. Uh, it's worth, uh, there's a few things, neither do I, neither do Stuart or I. We think it's effective uh, in this case. And you've left out a few facts. Um, so this program, the one that draws your ire so strongly, the bulk acquisition of telephone call records. First point, the Supreme Court has held since the late 70s that this data, like what number called what number at what time for how long, is not privacy information. Getting it from the government is not a search. Now, Professor Cole, in his scholarship on this, is against that and thinks the Supreme Court got it wrong. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court for 35 years has held this consistently. Second, going beyond what is strictly necessary from what the Supreme Court says, the, the Congress has authorized this provision. It's called Section 215. It was in the Patriot Act. It amended the FISA regulation. People on your side of this debate were against it then, and you're still against it now. 215 was very controversial then. It's still controversial now among the same people. But finally, you leave out the fact that this program, the bulk acquisition of telephone call records for narrow counterterrorism purposes, has been authorized 34 times by 14 different federal judges who wrote in writing. They said they would not have authorized it but for the safeguards in place, and every 90 days they have to do it again. All right, let's let David Cole respond. Uh, well, opponents are saying it's yeah. credible. What's that? The, 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 first, thing, the safeguards are very yeah, credible. The, the, the first thing I'd say is I'm, I'm not sure we would be um, satisfied, even if the safeguards were uh, fully credible and, and, and followed in every instance. Suppose the government said, we're going to put a video camera in each one of your bedrooms, uh, and we're going to collect the data from what happens in your bedroom. But we're not going to look at it until we have a really good reason to look at it. Would we say, okay, that's fine, go ahead, put the video camera in every one of our... So back-end safeguards, I think, are, are, don't answer all of the, the concerns. To, to Richard's point about the notion that this information is not uh, protected, doesn't have, we, don't, we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy with respect to this information. Mike Hayden has said, he, if they can get all the... the Just remind people of who Mike Hayden is. Mike Hayden, the, the uh, former head of uh, NSA, uh, CIA, has said, if, if I can get all of that phone data about who you've called uh, over a period of time, I don't need to listen to what you're saying. I can get such a, a, a portrait of who you are uh, that I don't even need the content. This stuff is more private than the content itself. Dave, but I, I don't think that I, I directly heard an answer or an articulated answer to why you don't trust the, 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 the safeguards, that you, why you, you said they're not credible after Richard actually made a pretty good point that the Supreme Court is time and again well, and, that, and the, legislation. The, so why, why, why don't you find them credible? Well, first of all, the, uh, Richard's point about the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court has not found that the safeguards are credible here. What the Supreme Court found was in the 70s before Al Gore invented the Internet, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it found that, w that when you make these phone calls, uh, you don't have an expectation of privacy with respect to the data regarding who you called and how long you called for. Immediately, Congress responded and said, yes, we do have an expectation of privacy. And they passed a law that forbade the government from getting it without individualized suspicion. This law, the government has now turned around and perverted in secret to uh, get the very information that Congress originally said we shouldn't get and to get not just the data with respect to one suspect, which is what was at issue in the Supreme Court case in the 70s, but to get every 
piece of phone data of every one of us every time we make a call. Richard Falconer. Let me try to put this in terms everyone can understand the utility of this. So Professor Cole, Mike German, Stuart Baker, I, John, we're here at the same place, same time, participating in complex operation. I, in fact, never had a phone call with David Cole. Or nonetheless, we're here doing something relatively complicated. Now, it turns out... You mean putting on this show? Yeah. Yes. Okay. We talked we talk to another person. You have person. no idea how complicated We talked to is. another person who, who is in the audience and was the coordinator of this. And um, now, now here's you understand why this data matters and why Mike Hayden would say that we want this pr information w where you have no expectation of right to privacy. We talked to the coordinator of this debate, who then put us together, right? That is how plots are unraveled. They find out about one perp, they look at the communications pattern, they identify the network, and they can diffuse the plot. So imagine this was not a debate but a bombing. This is how, this call record data is how it gets unraveled and stopped, and it's why it matters. And it's not a video camera in the bedroom. That is, a, that is, that is not a fair comparison, and I, and I think you know it. This data, for very good reasons, the government and the Congress and the court do not hold that you have the same expectations of the right to privacy as you do in your bedroom. Let me bring in Michael German and move the topic a little bit to the issue of practicality because, Michael, you made the case in your opening statement against this motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. You made the case that the flood of data is actually, it's overload, that it can't be used. And yet we heard Stuart Baker, your opponent, get up and go through a number of cases that he worked where, in fact, he, has, he clearly argued that the, the availability of the data after crimes were committed helped um, track down, put together how the plot was put together and make some pretty decent arrests. Uh, so, so there's no doubt the FBI has tremendous investigative skills that can be put to place once you know something bad has happened, and, and I've seen that done on a personal basis. But what we're talking about, first of all, it was sold as a preventative measure. This is for preventing terrorism, not for solving a, a, a terrorist bombing. So, you know, I, I think that the analysts at the NCTC really say it all. So, so when another I was going to quote. There are so many databases, people don't even know what buttons to push. They don't know where to get information, or they may even already have it and not know it. Another said, more, more information isn't necessarily better. Better information is better. So that's what we have to focus on. How, how do we let law enforcement have the tools it needs to get the bad guys without impacting the rights of the rest of us. And I think the founders did a pretty good job of setting up a system based on reasonable But, but does that mean you're just costs. dismissing the, the achievements that your opponent laid out where, in fact, the data was used to? Again, there's no transparency. There, there have been these cases that they say these were solved with, with this program. So you're saying we don't know whether he's telling the truth. Right, because the, the not public... That you're, and I want to make no, clear no, no. that you're no, not no, calling, no, kissing him with dishonesty. What I'm saying is there's no check to know whether the story is true yeah, or It's not. also worth noting that Stewart did not say that the NSA data mining program solved any of these. What he said was the passenger data program. When the NSA was asked point blank by Congress and by a friendly member of Congress, can you tell us some terrorist plots that you've stopped by virtue of the NSA data mining program, the, the, a call data program, he said yes, one. And it was the one that Mike referred to earlier. It was about eight an $8,000 transmission. And the, and the member of Congress who was friendly to this, to the program, said, wait a minute, you have, you have violent ca you have cases of violence, right, that you stop, not just transfer of money. And the NSA guy had to say, well, All right, Stuart, actually, well, Stuart no. Baker, we've been quoting you for, for quite a few minutes here without letting you speak. I, listen, so it's, I, I, it's I, your I turn. I think I'm winning. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I... I have to say, there's a little confusion here. Uh, I hear Mike German saying, uh, uh, you know, you, you, all of these th 
data collection programs are bad. Uh, and I think I hear Professor Cole saying, oh, no, those are all kinds. Spying on us is fine if you're gathering data about travel reservations or border crossings. All of that data is, isn't the kind of spying on us that we're opposed to. We're opposed to this one program that relates to NSA. Uh, uh, and I think uh, that suggests that they really don't have the courage of their convictions, that, that, that information that is available to third parties uh, should be used for security purposes. Uh, that's the position that we are arguing here, and I think uh, we've done a good job. On the question of whether NSA uh, and its program responds to a very real problem, let's remember how they got started with this program. Uh, in the months before 9-11, NSA was listening to communications in Yemen, and they heard calls from an al-Qaeda operative what they didn't know is that al-Qaeda al operative was planning the hijacking in the United States, and those calls were coming from inside the United States because they had no way to look inside the United States to see we, where these calls were coming from. Uh, uh, if they had known months before the uh, attack that somebody was inside the United States uh, at that high rank within al-Qaeda, there would have been an all-points uh, bulletin for that person. They would have found him. Probably the attack would not have occurred. It when you have a failure like that, you ask, what can we do to make sure that never happens again? And this program responds in part to that concern. And I think, uh, you know, that's a, that's a lesson that is written in blood for the National Security Agency. Michael Again, Drummond. the public record disputes that. The CIA did know he was in the United States. That the CIA wasn't talking to the NSA or the FBI or Customs is a totally different issue than whether they needed to collect the information. There were people in our intelligence community in both the CIA and NSA a who knew they were A few people here and there, but the NSA did not know because they had no tools to know it. Uh, uh, to say, well, if somebody else had done their job perfectly, you wouldn't have needed this program, is to say, you know, uh, if the world were perfect, we wouldn't need counterterrorism. But programs. you have to fix the problem that exists, not create a new problem by gathering data you don't need. I'm going to uh, come to the audience for questions in just a moment. And again, I want to remind you, if you raise your hand, uh, a microphone will be brought from the side aisle. Just hang, hang uh, for a second until the microphone reaches you. And then we'd appreciate it if you could stand up and tell us at least your first name. Um, and then um, to, to really f shoot a question at these guys and really um, make it uh, really focused as a question. In fact, why don't we go to that, since I've got some hands up already. Sir, why don't you, uh, right down in front, if a mic can be brought down here. I, I was thinking in the very center. Thanks. Hi, my name is Michael. Is there an alternative implementable uh, replacement to, the, to these data collection programs to keep us safe? I, I think there is. I, I, I think the, the framers uh, came up with an alternative. It's an alternative that we were used for 200 plus years. And the alternative says that you respect people's privacy until you have reason to believe that they're engaged in some sort of wrongdoing or that they have some sort of foreign intelligence uh, uh, that you want to get. And they, but the point is it's individualized suspicion. And once you develop that, then you can tap their phone, then you can search their homes, then you can invade their privacy. 
what, what the Fourth Amendment was designed to stop was dragnet surveillance, general search warrants that gave the government the power to just pick up everybody's information in the hope that they'd find a bad guy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite possible that they'll find a bad guy if they pick up everybody's information. But the framers said, that's not the, the way we want to strike the balance between liberty and security, because that gives up all of our privacy in the, in the hope that it'll make us more secure. And I, I, so I think we should stick with the way we've been doing it for 200 years and not let technology and the Internet push us towards dragnet surveillance. We, ha we have, in fact, stuck with that for information the Supreme Court deems personal privacy information. We just don't, for this category of information, which you think should be categorized, but the rest of the, the legal system in the United States doesn't. Well, but that's that's actually, the problem. So, that's I mean, your wrong. standard still applies to content, right? It still requires particularized approval to get the content. What we're talking about here is information which you or whoever have given to a third party, namely a telecommunications provider, and that they have in their system to use for their purposes, and as Stuart explained, the government needs for its purposes from time to time. So you're confusing the discussion by suggesting they're the same. These are different categories of information. And while you disagree with how the Supreme Court has ruled this, the entire system is built around this distinction. Well, two, well, point, two points on that. First of all, Dan I'm Cole. not the only one who says that this information is, it gives all kinds of private information. Mike Hayden has said that it's more valuable than the content itself in terms of determining what someone's doing. That's number one. Number two, the Supreme Court has actually, in its most recent uh, decision on, the, on whether the Fourth Amendment covers GPS monitoring of a car in public, said absolutely it does. And, one, and, and, and five justices said, because it inv involved a, uh, an invasion of a property right, but five justices said, because collecting all that information, even though it's in public, about where you go, they were collecting where this guy went 24-7 for a month. And nine, all nine justices said, that's an invasion of privacy. That requires Fourth Amendment protection, rejecting the very position that, that Rich Falconrath is putting forward, that, well, if it's, if, if it's in public, there is no expectation of privacy. Or if you share it with a third party, there is no expectation of privacy. The, the reality is that everything we do today is shared with a third party. Every time you walk anywhere with your phone, you're telling the phone company where you are. Should the government be able to get that without any individualized can suspicion? I, can, can I suggest Stuart Baker. A, a point where I think we do agree? Uh, of course the government uh, should, uh, wherever possible, be put to a reasonable suspicion before it looks into individual activities. Uh, uh, that is true even of the NSA program, which is the one that you have chosen as the uh, poster child for this issue. Uh, no one is allowed to search this data without a reasonable articulable suspicion. So the question really boils down to, are you allowed to collect it first? And, and put it in the database. And the, the question I thought was a, an excellent one, why would you uh, do that if there's an alternative? And the problem is there's not a good alternative. The, uh, the alternative would be to leave it with the companies and search it there when we have some reason to be concerned about that individual phone number. But the, the companies get rid of that data on their own schedule. They've got no obligation to keep it, and they, they don't. Uh, second, there are, we got rid of Maude Bell. Uh, there is no one phone company you can go to search, uh, no one computer system. So you would have to, to try to do this kind of uh, uh, analysis of 
who's talking to whom uh, outside the United States and in, you'd have to go jumping from system to system to system to system. Uh, it's a nightmare. If you thought uh, the uh, healthcare.gov was bad, building this system would be worse. Uh, right. we, uh, we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion. Spy on me. I'd rather be safe. Let's go back to questions, sir, right there. Orange necktie. Yeah, if you stand up, they'll find you with the microphone. I'm obviously tending to favor the middle because you're right in front of my vision. And the whole microphone thing would be a lot easier at the edges. You're just making it hard for the microphone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to go to the edges next time. The, 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 radio, the radio wouldn't hear you. Sure. Hi, my name is Zafar, and my question to the uh, proponents of this motion is that the government is spying on me, you two, and everyone in this room. And if Edward Snowden did not expose these programs, how would I know and you would know that the government is spying on us, whether it's legal or illegal? He's Rich, exposed Richard a lot of different about. things, um, and so I think we're probably going to refer back to this telephone metadata question. Um, and in that case, uh, it's true that the scale of it was classified, but it was disclosed to every member of Congress in writing twice, 2009 and 2011, where the administration, the Department of Justice, by the way, the Obama Department of Justice, wrote that this program, which we need you to reauthorize, which they did, broad bipartisan majorities, will entail the collection of substantially every telephone call record in the country. So they were told. Congress whether, knew. Yeah. So con and, and, and if kept they, it and secret. If they didn't, and they kept it secret. If they didn't, it wasn't, for, it wasn't being hidden from them at that stage. You could make an argument about an earlier program up to 2006. But for that program, in writing, they were told. Response from the other side? You don't necessarily well, have again, to. Again, when, when, when Ron Wyden asked James Clapper that question at a hearing, are you collecting data on millions of Americans, he flatly said, no, we are not. That, he's talking to Congress, he's talking on the record, he's talking to C-SPAN, he's talking to the American people. They are lying to us. And, and members of Congress, members in the House, have complained that the House Intelligence Committee will not give them access to records. You know, the, the excessive classification on these programs makes it so that only the member can see it, not the staff who actually have the time to work on these programs to understand the legality, so it's not as easy as oh, you said. Go ahead, yes. I, I, I was around for the... Uh, creation of the legal structure around uh, uh, intelligence. And it was a remarkable achievement for the United States. No other country thought you could do intelligence under law. We set up a program uh, that was designed to prevent the uh, abuses that had occurred in the 60s and 70s, and by and large, it has done it. But everyone knows, everyone here knows, you can't do intelligence in the open because the people you're trying to gather it on will be watching more closely than anyone else to figure out how to defeat it. At some point, you have to say, I've got to trust somebody. In this case, we are trusting 14 judges, two different administrations, uh, committees headed by different parties over uh, almost a decade. Uh, uh, at some point, you have to say, yes, I would love it if I could know about this, but I realize that everything I know about uh, Al-Qaeda knows about, and I have to trust somebody. If I'm going to trust both parties and all three branches of governments, that's probably as good as it's going to get. And, and let me just challenge Michael the Truman. idea that this is kept secret so that the terrorist doesn't know 
that they're doing this because I, I worked and met a lot of terrorists working with them, and every single one of them and every single criminal I worked undercover against knew they were, that they were a terrorist or a criminal. <laughs> so they knew that there was probable cause to believe that they were a terrorist and criminal, and yet they knew that the Fourth Amendment existed. So they don't worry about suspicionless collection because they know they can get caught up in reasonable suspicion collection, probable cause, sus- proof, by a re- proof beyond a reasonable doubt suspicion. Right? So this was secret to keep it from us so we wouldn't know we were being spied. And I think, you also have, I think you have to address the fact that Jim Sensenbrenner, the, the leading Republican on the Judiciary Committee who wrote Section 215, he says this program is beyond anything that I would have ever dreamed of authorizing. And, and how can that be if, if he was read into the program? and uh, Is he lying to us? Okay, right down front. Um. I think one of the more compelling arguments against the proposition is that it's just not practical. There's, there's billions of numbers being collected all the time, um, and both of y'all seem to have a very extensive experience in the field. Do you find that it is actually impractical, that, that, that agents are being completely overwhelmed by the numbers they're seeing every day and not at the higher levels but down um, the folks who are actually doing the collection? Stuart is that Baker? something you find? I'll, I'll, I'll try that. There is always a risk that you will be overwhelmed by data. Uh, 90% of the data in the world was created in the last two years, apparently. I think that's uh, about 40% of my kids' uh, Facebook postings. Um, (laughs) But in fact, the tools for for, uh, analyzing that are also pretty good. And no one at NSA said, we cannot keep up with this data. Once you've put it in a proper uh, framework, they were only doing, after all, 300 identifier searches uh, in a year. Uh, it was not a problem doing those searches. It was not a problem collecting and putting the data into a database. Uh, there may be times when uh, the, an ordinary agent says, I've got too much data. But I, in this program and in the program I talked about earlier with travel data, uh, the computer systems allowed us to use it very effectively. That was kind of Michael German's opening point, that there is too much. So I'd like to hear your response to Stewart's response to that. Well, one of the major controversial programs was a similar program collecting Internet data that that ran. That was the whole uh, hospital room confrontation with with Attorney General uh, um, Ashcroft. Ashcroft, I'm sorry. Um, uh, And they ended that program in in 2011 because they found that it wasn't actually very effective. So for 10 years, they collected our records, and it took them that long to decide they weren't actually very useful. Ma'am, you just had your hand up um, right behind you, sorry. Thank you. My name is Shelley, and um, I'd like to talk to the point, ask the question about the point of what data mining means to our privacy and our safety. I have to admit that whenever I hear a government person say, trust me, I get very skeptical about what they are doing. We have a long history in this country. Okay, I, I'm going to stop you there because I, I would rather let them make the speeches. But your okay, question I, is good, I, and, what and, what I, and, it, and it feels like a big softball to this side. But, but, but I, I, think, I think it's worth getting some more detail about the way in which 
that you actually, you know, you, you propose something that's not happening, a TV camera in the bedroom, but let's say the data mining is happening. Uh, and what, what are actually the risks to privacy, aside from the kind of creepy feeling that you described having that it can be done? What, what, what are the actual risks in the implementation? And I'll let David Cole take that. Well, the risks are that with all of the, I mean, the, the, the same logic that gave them access to the phone records would give them access to your email records, to your internet records, to your credit card records, to your bank records, uh, to your email, your phone location data. And the, 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 the danger is you put all that information together and they can determine everything about us. They, they, they can know more about us than our closest friends know, then our spouses know, and the only thing that, if you give them all that data, then the only thing that's stopping them from doing that are these so-called back-end safeguards, which uh, were routinely violated by, by the NSA, and which we, we've not, we didn't have any opportunity to debate as to whether they were adequate or not because they were put in place entirely in secret. That, Richard Falconrath. The, the they that you just described, they can put all this together. They can understand the that. government. Yeah, that sounds a lot more like Google than no, the government. Because, and you have to take this, this actually is a serious point. This is not the case that the government is tracking everything you do and can put it all together. And the government doesn't care what you're doing. They're actually, though, it was in the last 10 years with the explosion of social media and the explosion of terms of service agreement and informed consent that no one reads, is this, what you just described, emerging in the private sector, with a legal basis being a document which no one can really read and give informed consent to. Unlike the program we're talking about, which is subject to extreme safeguards rooted in the Constitution, backed up by both chambers of Congress and by the judiciary. And so I think you've really got to shift your terms of your argument here. This isn't the 70s with the FBI running around at the behest of Richard Nixon probing into people's lives. This is a world where the government is tightly regulated and overseen in a way subject to law. And it's the private sector, if anything, which is emerging as the they in your scary scenario. Well, the the fact that the private sector may uh, may threaten our privacy is not a justification to, to, to allow the government to invade our privacy for two reasons. One, we can establish limits on, on the private sector, but two, for the reasons I suggested earlier, there are lots more reasons to be concerned about the government having access to th- this information than the private sector having it. And that's reflected in our Constitution, which constitutionally limits government access to data, does not constitutionally limit private access to data. There's a reason for that, and, and, and it's a good reason. Today, I want to point out tonight's debate is being broadcast uh, worldwide on our website, iq2us.org, and on fora.tv. It's also being seen at Arizona State on live stream. And i just saying that because in the time we have left, uh, if you're watching it and would like to join in the audience participation question, you can try uh, sending us a, a tweet on it. Uh, and if, it, if we can pick it up in time, our hashtag is spy debate, and we'll try to work it into the debate. If you send that tweet, the NSA will know that you have. <laughs> so They already know. So, <laughs> so think carefully. Another question up, right up there. Hi, my name is Khadija. I was going to say, um, if the NSA wanted to be safe for us, why did they lie to Congress about spying on us? Stuart Baker. I'm, 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 well, really, the question is: should really, I think the question is: should we be troubled that the that the NSA 
is accused of I, I having been dishonest. I, I don't want to defend uh, uh, what uh, uh, the DNI said there. He was, uh, as far as I can tell, surprised by the question and made an error in his answer. Uh, uh, but I, I, no, I'm sorry. I, I, how could he have said, I'm going to lie to people after having gone out and said, I want everybody to uh, understand this program? I, uh, that's, it's quite clear that he had set up and agreed to provide this information to everyone. Uh, I, and so I, I don't think that we should be saying that there's, a, uh, 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 there's an intentional lie uh, uh, being undertaken in that uh, context. And it was an unintentional lie. And at that time, nobody knew about this program. We didn't know. Edward Snowden hadn't stolen the information. He was asked this, point This blank. information was provided to everybody in Congress. Uh, everybody in Congress. A letter was written that, that we assume, you're assuming every so, member so of Congress, the, the, every member you know of Congress what? I wanna, I wanna reads every letter that's sent I, to I think this written. side argument Let me just on, clarify on, on what he said will not help the audience vote on the motion. So I'd like but, to move but on. But Senator Wyden did, did come out and say that he had given the question 24 hours in advance. Okay. Right up here. If you can stand, please. Thanks. Hi, my name is Cassandra. I wanted to ask about the effect of uh, the revel revelations of these programs on our foreign policy. Could you speak to that, please? I, that's another one where I, well, I'm not sure that that's relevant to the question of how we should feel about about being spied on ourselves, so I'm going to pass Actually, on, I, I on that question. That. I know you can take it, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> Sir, right up there. Hi, uh, my name's Jamie. Uh, it seems to me the central issue here is a reasonable suspicion. So my question is, is the massive uh, surveillance that has been on debate here uh, necessary to ascertain whether someone is a reasonable suspicion or not? Well, let me try this one. Uh, um, Stuart Baker. There, no one looks at these numbers without reasonable suspicion. That's the standard that is required by uh, some of the safeguards, not all of them, but some of the safeguards that are already built into this program. And Stuart, just to clarify, so, th so that means the data is available, but nobody actually it goes is, and looks at right. it. That's right. Okay. That's right. I, I, so that was done quite consciously because everyone at NSA and in the government believed that the right answer was not to look at data without some reason to believe that the person that you're looking at is engaged in suspicious activity. The only difference between a standard law enforcement search and the searches we're talking about in the context of NSA is they gathered the information first and put it in a database but didn't search it without a reasonable suspicion. The reason that they gathered it first was because it was not practical to leave it where it was. They would not be able to do the searches in the time with the efficiency that they needed to use. Others I'd like to respond? Uh, so part, part of it is that the harm comes from the initial collection, right? If, if we know, and there's studies to show this, if we know we're under surveillance, our behavior changes, right? Every time that, that you're on Google and you hesitate before you put that, that search term in or, or you hesitate to go to that website, that does damage to the fabric of our society, the idea that there's a marketplace of ideas. So that original collection is a harm. But even with the, the limited number of searches, they go three hops. So it's the, the reasonable suspicious number, but the people they called, the people they called, and the people they called. 
And then that, inf it's like a big scoop that goes into this database, pulls out all those numbers which could rise into the millions. Pulls out 500 numbers. They, go, they put in 300, they brought out 500, they gave 500 numbers to the FBI. They didn't, they didn't bring out a great gob of data. They, they said they go three hops out. So if, so, you, if you only so, talk to two people, perhaps five. No, they, they, they go to many places looking for suspicious numbers. When they find the suspicious numbers, they take it to the FBI. They only took 500 numbers to the FBI. I thought I saw him. That doesn't say how many numbers they looked at. That, that just says how many numbers they numbers determined. Numbers without names attached. It was no. just. The, the minimization standard says the numbers from the three hops go into the corporate store. The corporate store can be searched by anyone for any reason. It, there's, the, the minimization li limits aren't on the corporate store. So it's like a big scoop that gets it, puts it in the store. That data can be used for a myriad purposes. We have time for one more question, so make it good. <laughs> no Hi, my name is Sue, and my question is for Mr. Baker. It seems that the heart of your argument is the sense of credible threat, that the public believe that there is a credible threat, but the government can't tell us what it is. They cannot reveal they can only say, we've uncovered plots. They can't tell us what they are. As a journalist, I've had the privilege of talking with numerous people who do counterterrorism and journalists who cover that. And they've looked me in the eye, and they said, the threat is real. And so I is believe that. So is your question, should we But trust? my question is, in the wake of um, supposed WMDs in Iraq, why should the public believe the government I, I think that's a, a fair question. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, and the, the real answer is you don't need to believe the government. Uh, sure, the government has access to particular threats, uh, but it doesn't take uh, security clearance to know that there are a lot of people who would like nothing better than to kill everybody in this auditorium uh, and would be delighted uh, to have done it. Uh, uh, we, we live, that's the world we live in. And the technology that uh, we all enjoy has empowered them. You couldn't have pulled off 9-11 30 years earlier. Right? Uh, what I'm really uh, suggesting is that uh, having empowered everyone and increasingly empowered uh, people on the other side of the world who hate us uh, to cause serious damage here, we need to let the government use the technical tools that uh, are created uh, by uh, lower costs for storing data to offset the advantage that the terrorists have. Uh, that's, uh, it seems to me you don't have to have a security clearance to have a common sense uh, appreciation of what the threat is and how empowered terrorists are these days. Uh, because, Stuart, you had a good long run, and we're going to wrap up. I want to give you 15 seconds for a last word. Michael German. Sure. But 15 <laughs> seconds if you can do it. Land this thing. Uh, <laughs> so we can demand accountability from our intelligence agencies, and we need to, because the only way they're going to be effective. We, we didn't know how bad things were on September 10th, 2001, or, right? So what happened now is we have less knowledge of what the intelligence community is doing and how effective it's being. That can't work. We have, we have to have transparency. That's how we get effective government. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is spy on me. I would rather be safe. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. And remember how you voted before the debate. We're going to have you vote again immediately after these closing statements. And the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms of your vote will be declared our winner. 
On to round three, closing statements. Our motion is spy on me, I'd rather be safe. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Michael German, he's senior policy counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union, Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office. Michael German, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me tonight, and thanks to Stuart and Richard for a great debate. Let me close by talking about this problem from a, from a different standpoint. I'm hopefully the only person in this room who's actually been part of a terrorist conspiracy. So I, I have a little bit of insight on, on what terrorists want. They want you to be afraid. They know they aren't powerful enough to overthrow a government uh, or, to, or popular enough to win an election. So their only tool is to use horrible violence to try to provoke a government into, into taking measures that damage itself. They know that when people are afraid, they make bad decisions. They act irrationally. And their hope is that the government is going to overreact to the threat, right? They're going to go after communities of suspicion rather than focusing on individuals who are meaning harm. Uh, one of the interesting things I, I found working in terrorist groups, they always have a manifesto, right? They create a clandestine organization, and then the first thing they do is tell everybody in the world who they are. <laughs> From an undercover perspective, that's bad policy. But the reason they do it is because they're trying to provoke grievance. So they, they want to let the government know who to go after so that they start to build real grievance. And that's what starts to undermine the government when it starts losing its legitimacy by doing things that, that violate its own values. That's why I think the Founding Fathers were so genius when they created a system that that inoculated against this kind of reaction, right? It made sure that the, the government was accountable to the people and limited in the power that it could use, particularly in violating the civil rights of, of Americans. Uh, and, and what they knew wasn't that that, that was going to be a weak form of government, but that that would be the strongest government on earth. We don't need to be afraid. We need to demand accountability, and uh, we don't need to sacrifice privacy especially for the illusion of secrecy. Thank you. Michael German. Our motion is spy on me. I'd rather be safe. And here to summarize his position supporting the motion, Richard Falconrath, former Deputy Homeland Security Advisor. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falconrath. Thank, thank you, John, and thank you, uh, David and Michael, for uh, an excellent discussion and debate. Uh, I hope the audience understands that neither Stuart nor I are in favor of an unfettered, unchecked executive authority to conduct domestic spying. That's not what we're arguing here. We understand that this is an incredibly difficult area of governance uh, and requires tough oversight and the involvement of Congress and the involvement of the judiciary. So please understand that's where we're coming from. There is another side to this, aside from the, 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 the uh, legitimate interest in personal privacy that we all have, and it's security. Uh, and this is, as I said at my opening, not abstract, and I'll end with a brief anecdote. I was Deputy Commissioner of Counterterrorism in New York City Police Department. We were part of the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. In September 2008, we learned of a case. We knew nothing about it until we were told, as a result of electronic surveillance, there was an individual in Denver developing a bomb and intending to transport it back to New York City for the purpose of attacking the New York City subway around, he thought, September 14, 15, or 16. We found out about that because of his electronic communication with his bomb-making trainer in Pakistan. He drove across the country. Uh, FBI surveillance team in Denver acquired him and began surveilling him. In the course of his drive across the country with one to two kilograms of TATP explosive in his trunk, we began an investigation of his contacts, who he was in telephonic communication with. 
As a result of that, dozens of people he was in communication with were identified. Quickly, his two key co-conspirators were identified and then subject to much higher levels of of intrusive investigation. This was a real plot against the city of New York, where I was at the NYPD, uh, and it was stopped, not entirely, but in large measure because of the techniques we were talking about here tonight. This is not abstract. There is another side to this, and it is something which is very, very valuable. Thank you, Richard Falkenrath. Our motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe and here. Summarizing his position against this motion, David Cole, a professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Ladies and gentlemen, David Cole. Thank you. Um, Technology has changed uh, the calculus of surveillance in a dramatic way. It used to be if the government wanted to find out everything about who you hung out with, what books you read, uh, who who you were talking to, what you thought, uh, it was very difficult, very costly for it to do so. And that was a check on the government's ability to invade our privacy. That check has gone out the window because of the uh, because of Al Gore uh, and the and, and the internet. We now it's now possible to learn everything about us through this third party information, which Richard Falconrath says we shouldn't be concerned about uh, at all. I think we need to be concerned about it. I think we can strike a proper balance between the technology that makes it possible for this kind of very very broad surveillance and the need to find bad guys, but we can't do so if the programs are run in secret, if the NSA is lying to us about it, uh, and and if we haven't had an opportunity to have a democratic uh, deliberation. And when we don't have that democratic deliberation, it seems to me it's very likely that the security people are going to go overboard on the side of security. And when they're collecting texts, They're collecting data on every text that I send to my high school daughter when I go to pick her up from school and she hasn't come out and I say, where are you? I'm here. Where are you? I'm here. Where are you? I'm here. Why does the NSA need to know that information? The only reason that they have that access to that information is because they did it in secret, because if they'd done it in public and told us they wanted to gather that information to keep us safe, I think we would have said no, and you should say no. Thank you, David Cole. Our motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Stuart Baker, the first Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. Thanks, John. Uh, You know, um, uh, when I started as general counsel of the National Security Agency, Janet Reno, the Attorney General, came out for a visit, uh, and this was a high-stakes meeting. She was deeply skeptical about whether this spy agency could be trusted at all, uh, whether it understood what the Fourth Amendment was. And we were walking through an operations center with her when the director stopped, looked at a corporal who was going over uh, uh, some intercepts, and he said uh, to the corporal, Stand up, sir. Uh, And uh, what do you do if you find uh, communication by an American? That corporal plucked out of the uh, mass of people uh, doing the uh, intercepts, said, sir, we uh, segregate that. We cannot disseminate it unless there's foreign intelligence in it. Uh, We must uh, take the, uh, must anonymize the data and uh, um, destroy it if there's no intelligence in it, Uh, uh, which was the the rule. And I thought to myself, 
you know, the first rule of lawyering is don't ask a question if you don't know what the answer is going to be. Uh, uh, but the director was absolutely sure that you could pick anybody out of that agency and ask him what the rules were. He would tell you and would be proud of the fact that he knew them and would obey them. That is the culture of the National Security Agency. Uh, if you give them the rules, they will follow those rules. They have, we have given them rules in this context. They are subject to lots of constraints. We cannot say all of this will be public or we might as well not try to gather intelligence. Uh, we have to set rules. We have to count on people to enforce them, and then we have to count on the goodwill of our uh, uh, agencies to carry them out, uh, uh, because that's our only hope of being able to do intelligence under law. I think we can do it. Thank you, Stuart Baker. And that concludes closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best here. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypad at your seat and press keys number one, two, or three. Remember, the motion is this. Spy on me, I would rather be safe. If you agree with this team that's arguing for the motion, push number one. If you agree with their opponents, this team, push number two. And if you became or remain undecided, push number three. And you can ignore the other keys. They're not live. And if you make a mistake, just correct it, and the system will lock in your final result. And we're going to lock this out in about 15 seconds. And then we need about two minutes to... Uh, calculate the results for you. So um, while that's being done, one thing I want to say is uh, I've been exchanging glances with our executive producer who sits in the front row, and a thumbs up came about halfway through. Uh, I think this is one of the best debates that we've ever had in terms of not only the, the material that the teammates, uh, that the opponents and teammates brought to the table, but also the spirit in which this was conducted and the respect uh, and the, the, our favorite word, the intelligence of it. So I just want to invite a round of applause for all of them. I also, uh, I also want to congratulate everyone who asked a question, and that includes the questions that I passed on. There was nothing wrong with any of them. This, this is the kind of thing that really makes you think and your brain starts going, and I think, in fact, a couple of the questions that I turned down in themselves would make excellent topics for debate. So everybody who put their hands up and those who got up to ask questions, I want to thank you as well for doing that. Uh, as we said at the beginning, we would love to have you tweet about this debate. You can use the Twitter handle at IQ2US. That's us. The hashtag is SpyDebate. Uh, our next debate will be in New York City on Wednesday, December 4th. You can get up there for that. And I happen to know that there are some of our New York audience members who came down for this debate. So you've got to copy that and go up to New York. Um, the topic on December 4th will be don't eat anything with a face. For the motion, Dr. Neil Bernard, he is a clinical researcher who studies the effects of diet on health. Also for the motion, Gene Bauer, he is president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. Time magazine called him the conscience of the food movement. Against the motion, Chris Masterjohn, who is a nutritional sciences researcher, and he's the proponent of the paleo diet, and Joel Salatin, who is a third-generation alternative farmer. A limited number of tickets are still available for that one on our website, www.iq2us.org. The McCain Institute is holding another debate right here in the Burke Theater on Thursday, December 5th. They are debating this question, drone wars, are we going too far? To reserve a ticket for that, go to their website, McCainInstitute.org.
org. And for people who couldn't join our live audience, there are a lot of ways to catch these debates going forward at iq2us.org and on forward.tv. And the McCain Institute debates can be seen uh, on their site as well. And we would love to have you listen to all of our debates on NPR stations across the country. Uh, we'll almost definitely be broadcast here in Washington on WAMU. So tune in when that happens and you can listen to your applause. Um, and we're hoping to make it back to Washington again next year, so go to our website for up-to-date information on that. And before I announce the final results, I want one more time to turn the lectern over to Ambassador Kurt Volker. Well, first off, first off, let me say that uh, these are issues that are in the news every day, that you hear about them all the time, but I do think this was the most serious, informed, respectful, and insightful discussion of these issues that I've ever heard, and I want to hear, do you agree with that? And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that that is true is because of the person who has not yet been thanked, wonderful moderator, John Donovan. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. On, on behalf of the McCain Institute, I want to say thank you, and we've loved this partnership with Intelligence Squared. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you, as John announced, uh, here in this room, December 5th, 5 o'clock, on drone policy. Are we going too far? John? Thank, thank you, you, Kurt. All right, so I, it's all in now. I have the results. Remember, we have you vote twice, once before the debate and once again after the debate. And the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Our motion is this. Spy on me, I would rather be safe. The initial vote, before hearing the arguments, 26% of you agreed with this motion, 41% were against it, and 33% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, you need to uh, move the most in percentage point terms to win this game. Here is the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote is 29%. They went from 26% to 29%. That's a 3% increase. That's the number to beat. Let's see the team against the vote. They were 41% to start. They were 62% at the end. They clearly beat that 3%. They are our winner. Our congratulations to them. The motion, spy on me, I'd rather be safe. The team arguing for that has lost. The team arguing against it has won. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. <laughs>